Hello and welcome to Socialism, the Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. How can socialists link day-to-day struggles to the need for revolution? Global capitalism is in an historic crisis and offers no future to the majority of humanity. Socialism is the only alternative to bloated billionaires, mass unemployment and ruinous trade wars. On the one hand, the profit system is in such a mess that even defending existing pro-worker reforms can lead to colossal pitched battles. On the other hand, why would workers bother fighting for new reforms if it seems the economy cannot possibly grant them? Socialists need demands and slogans which link the struggle over day-to-day problems with the need to overthrow capitalism. So how can we work out such transitional demands? What is the difference between a transitional programme and a minimum-maximum programme? Is there a fixed formula we can use to create it? Has one ever worked? And what are some of the problems it would have to address today? This episode of Socialism looks at the bridge from immediate needs to socialist revolution. What is a transitional programme? Today I'm here with James Ivans, who has been working on the Socialist paper for the last six years (laughs) and has also been organising and leading on the podcasts for the Socialist Party over the last few years as well. But this time we've turned the tables on him (laughs) again, I think I've done it before, and we're going to discuss with James today about Trotsky's ideas of the transitional programme, a transitional method, which James is going to explain to us what that is all about. But to kick us off, I'm going to ask you, James, why do we need to convince people of socialism? Well, Sarah, I think we need to look at... First of all, the conditions we're in right now, that's always got to be our starting point as socialists. We're not trying to solve abstractions, we're trying to solve the real problems faced by working class people and in fact all of society right in this present day. And the Committee for a Workers International, that's the World Socialist Organisation which the Socialist Party is affiliated to, has called the pandemic the Great Accelerator of all the contradictions and conflicts and processes of change that have been taking place in capitalism over the course of the past few years. It's brought them all to an even more profound head. In historical terms, what we're looking at is an economic and social system, capitalism, which has realistically exhausted its potential to improve the conditions of humanity. Mm. (laughs) Now, (laughs) that's actually been the case for a while. There have been ups and downs. There have been periods where that has been partially overcome temporarily. For some people. For some people at least, that's true. But the system is able to find a way out of crises and carry on, and that's always the case if it's not replaced, by the way. But there was an earlier period in capitalism, if you go back in history a couple of hundred years, when capitalism was new on the scene as the commanding system in the world, Mm. and it expanded human civilization's ability to make goods and services for itself to a scale and an efficiency which has never before been seen. Mm. It was a world away from toiling for crops under feudalism and two worlds away from hunting wild animals in tribal societies and so on. But it did this on the basis of a tiny elite competing to control more and more of the world for private profit. And there's only so much of the world to go around. So the wheels come off and we saw this in the First World War and we're seeing it now with the trade wars. Now, if there's no alternative social force, as I mentioned, to the capitalists, which can take power out of their hands and reorganise society to overcome those problems, and that 
means using the productive innovations of capitalism but distributing their benefits democratically to wider society rather than siphoning them up to billionaires who are wrestling for control of a world which is too narrow for them to expand anymore. If we don't have an alternative society to replace that, then we face a prolonged period of disorder, of economic breakdown, and of even greater misery for the mass of the world's population. That's what's in front of us. And we see the first symptoms of that profound dysfunction today. We see that the new technologies, automation, artificial intelligence, the internet, we see the huge potential which they have for production, but the bosses are not capable of actually implementing them and giving us the full benefits. We see the trade wars, chiefly between the US and China, but between all sorts of different global and regional powers and the integration of the world economy seeming to come apart at the seams. There are limits to that, as we've discussed in other podcasts, but there are massive tensions coming up. We see ahead of us a prospect of at least recession and probably depression in the economy without the prospect of any kind of rebound to (laughs) a situation which wasn't great for everyone before, but where at least there was some prospect of a certain amount of advancement for sections of the population. That is off the cards for the foreseeable future. And we've seen even before the pandemic, revolts breaking out. But what we haven't seen them having is any kind of organisation or perspective for what to replace the current system with. They've been fighting because they have to fight on immediate issues, but they don't really have something to attack the problems at source. Now, socialism, as we see it, has the solutions. Public ownership of the levers of the economy, workers' control of those levers, democratic planning of production and distribution, And on the basis of all of this, international cooperation rather than this economic battle royale Mm. over PPE, over vaccine development, over infrastructure investment, offshoring of jobs and so on, which we see right now. Now, this alternative system is called socialism. But although socialism as a kind of symbol of an alternative and a possible future society, that symbol is increasingly known and accepted, particularly among the youth, It is only understood vaguely and incompletely in wide sections of the population. And although socialist measures are increasingly seen as viable, in fact, as the only way out, there's no understanding among those people who see them as viable, well, among most people who see them as viable, of how to achieve them. So how do we connect the immediate needs of ordinary people and these leads to protests, to strikes, to uprisings in some countries, how do we connect those to the understanding and the organisation needed to actually end capitalism? That's the question for us today. That question means how do we develop workers' consciousness? And when Marxists use the word consciousness, what we mean is the political understanding, particularly of the working class, of its ability to take power into its hands, actually, because of the role it plays in mass production of goods and services, it can shut the economy down, and furthermore, it has the economic power, and potentially, particularly in advanced countries, the technical expertise, to actually run things itself. How do we change it from a class in itself, as Karl Marx put it, into a class for itself, coming together to actually take power in society? Okay, thanks, James. But aren't these questions of how to convince people of our ideas always an issue for socialists? This isn't just something that's come up now in this crisis situation, is it? No, absolutely not. They've always been an issue for socialists. And, you know, fully grasping both the necessity and the potential for socialist change requires time and effort and application. Being able to envision a way out needs, yes, study of theory, but also experience and struggle. It means battles both with the bosses and with other trends of left ideas so that we can come out with the best ideas 
Now, of course, some people would say perhaps if all this was taught in the education system or popularised in the established media, this would be easy, so we should just get them to do that. But, you know, the whole point the Tories is... The are saying that you can't even teach anti-capitalist ideas now, so... No, that's right, exactly. It's one of the battles that we have to have. No, and of course we battle on that point. We want anti-capitalist ideas to be taught in the schools and to have greater representation in the established media, but the whole point is... What we're trying to do is overthrow the owners and masters of these institutions, remove all their privilege and power. How could they possibly be so stupid as to let us do this effectively, you know, with their own ball, if you like? So to do this, we need organisations with a programme. And the word programme is used a lot by the Socialist Party and the CWI. In fact, it's used by all political organisations. A programme is simply the list of policies which you envision being necessary to change society as you want to do it. All parties, well, theoretically all parties have a programme. That's not always the case. But really, (laughs) what's the justification for your organisation existing? What's the justification for your party if you don't have a programme? You have to understand what you're trying to do. That's the reason the party exists in the first place. In fact, the programme, the party and its publications, these are all just different expressions of the same goal, which is to convince workers of the necessity and possibility of socialism and organise them to achieve it. So we use demands, and demands are us saying to people who have power, like central government or local government, we want you to make this change, because this would improve the lot of working class people and wider society. We also use slogans, which are ways of encapsulating these ideas in a pithy way, which is easy to popularise among a wide layer of people. So, for example, earlier on, a few months ago, during the climate strikes, the school student climate strikes, What we were saying was, look, there are these figures out about the small number of multinational corporations who are responsible for the bulk of carbon-producing activities. Mm. Now, they make profit from doing that, so our answer is take them out of private hands Mm. so that the profit motive is removed and therefore their production could be planned and we could move them away from carbon-producing activities into clean energy and so on. So that was one of our demands, that actually governments should do that. We say to the government, you should do this because this will help solve the climate crisis. Now, we link that to the idea of doing it more generally. Mm -hmm. And in fact, really, the very situation of big businesses being responsible for climate change, this is an expression of the capitalist system being Mm -hmm. responsible for climate change. So a slogan which we used on our placards, for example, which we brought along to the climate strikes in central London and elsewhere, was socialist change not climate change. Mm. And that's a pithy way of expressing the idea that if we are serious about stopping environmental disaster, we need an alternative economic system. And it helps people make the link between their immediate demands, we don't want to die by being submerged under the rising Mm. seas, and the idea of an alternative sort of society. The demonstrations themselves were spontaneously coming up with slogans like system change, not climate change, which is actually a slogan that we ourselves have used in the past, whereas <laughs> now young people are on the same page as us in terms of needing an alternative system, but the question then becomes what sort of system is that? So there were other left organisations who were just parroting back to the young people system change, not climate change. That leaves them where they are. It doesn't take them a single step further forward. It's not a perfect slogan, perhaps, socialist change, not climate change. Nothing is exactly perfect. However, it does move those young people on a step. 
And this is part of the task. We have to make sure that we're not just leaving consciousness where it is, that at every stage we're trying to move it forward, but at the same time we can't go too far the other way. We can't run too far ahead of where people are. And we have to make sure that we're using the language and the immediate demands which people see in front of them relating to their immediate conditions. How can they actually change things practically right now? It's not just demands, by the way, on the existing systems of capitalist power, but also on the organisations of the workers' movement itself. So we might put demands on the leaders of the trade unions to mm. say, we need you to organise a struggle to fight for mm. nationalisation of the energy industries, because any measures which the Tories, for example, are going to put in place, they'll try and turn them against the working class. They might tax fuel, which is obviously going to mostly hit ordinary working class people. They might say, yes, OK, we'll move away from carbon production partly, but that will just mean a load of power station workers being thrown out of a job. So we say to the trade union leaders, you must lead a struggle and put your own stamp on these things. Workers need to hold strikes and they need to put forward their own demands, put pressure on the capitalists mm -hmm. and so on. So you can put demands on different institutions, society, not just the class enemy, but our own organisations as well. And of course, where you have achieved a degree of power in local government or even on rare occasions, mm -hmm in the capitalist parliaments, you can try to implement some of those demands yourself. Mm -hmm. And they move from being demands to being policies, in mm -hmm. fact. And actually, in a socialist revolution, mm -hmm. they would be policies. Who are you putting the demands on? You should just implement them. At all times, capitalism means that the workers are systematically robbed, they're insecure in their livelihoods. Some of them will always have to fight just to get by. But in epochs like our own, mm -hmm. epochs of crisis for the system as a whole, mm -hmm the robbery becomes utterly naked mm. and the insecurity becomes generalised. So fight back will come on immediate issues, as we've already seen, with or without this idea of how to stop the source of the attacks. And the Communist Manifesto puts it like this. Mm. The Communists, i.e. the Marxists, fight for the attainment of the immediate aims, for the enforcement of the momentary interests of the working class, but in the movement of the present, they also represent and take care of the future of that movement. Mm. They never cease for a single instant to instil in the working class the clearest possible recognition of the hostile antagonism between bourgeoisie and proletariat. So we don't stand back mm. from the immediate struggles of the working class. And in fact, any truly Marxist organisation will prove itself the best fighter mm. on those immediate issues. But we have to underline that this is the beginning of our role, mm. not the end of it. Mm. Now, you mentioned Leon Trotsky and his idea of transitional demands. In fact, Trotsky himself said, look, this isn't my idea. This is the collective experience of the working class. And transitional demands were used throughout the history of the Marxist movement. But Trotsky put it like this in a document called the Transitional Programme, which was the first sort of central policy statement of the Fourth International it was drafted in 1938. It is necessary to help the masses in the process of the daily struggle to find the bridge between the present demand and the socialist programme of the revolution. This bridge should include a system of transitional demands stemming from today's conditions and from today's consciousness of wide layers of the working class and unalterably leading to one final conclusion, the conquest of power by the proletariat. Aha. <laughs> so you've come <laughs> onto this idea of a bridge... So how do we build the bridge then in workers' understanding? So there's two sides to a bridge, obviously. There is. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> yes, it's not a or bridge to nowhere. <laughs> like, like under the New Deal, no bridges to yeah. nowhere. Yeah. 
And our starting point has got to be what is objectively necessary. Yeah. And what is objectively necessary is the socialist revolution. That's right. So that objective endpoint, that's where we've got to get to. That's what we have to begin from. And that involves analysing the real context in the world. Mm -hmm. What are the actual problems in the world? What is the state of affairs in the capitalist economy with the different capitalist powers, the international mm -hmm. relations and so on? Looking at actually what is in front of us concretely. That's the starting point. But we also have to take into account consciousness of the working class. What is the, the current... Side of the bridge. Exactly. <laughs> where are we coming from? Yeah. So, you know, we, we start from where we're going to, which yeah. sounds like an odd way round, but we have to be clear about the goal. That's, yeah. That is the yeah, starting yeah, yeah. point. Otherwise we might miss the other side. <laughs> no, exactly. And end up in the middle of the river, as yeah. so many socialist organisations sadly have. Yeah. We also have to analyse, look, what do workers understand is necessary at the moment? Mm -hmm. How far away are they from understanding that a socialist revolution is necessary? What are the next steps mm -hmm. to point them towards a socialist mm -hmm. revolution? So Trotsky, as I've just mentioned, talked about a system of demands which have a kind of logical train of sequence to them. And to look again at the Communist Manifesto, actually, mm -hmm. we can see an early example of this, even in 1848. So in the penultimate chapter of the Communist Manifesto, there's a 10-point programme a list of demands which Marx and Engels put forward as the kind of central planks of what the workers should try to achieve. The first of which is nationalising the land. The second of which is a heavy progressive income tax, so taxing the rich. The third of which is abolishing the rights of inheritance. Now, these are ways to take the resources which workers need to improve their lives out of the hands of the capitalists so that society as a whole can use them. But the obvious objection to this is, well, hang on, mm. aren't the capitalists just going to run out of the country with all their money? Yeah. So, therefore, point four in the Communist Manifesto's programme is confiscation of the property of all emigrants and rebels. And this is kind of <laughs> Royster Doyster 19th century language. Yeah. <laughs> but today, we would use language like this. We'd say capital controls... We would say a state monopoly of foreign trade. We would say nationalise the assets mm -hmm. of capitalists who attempt to sabotage the new economic order. And point five, nationalising the banks so that you can control all the lines of credit and also see what's going on in the secret accounting practices of the bosses. But it's posed as a response. Mm -hmm. We start from how do we get these resources to mm -hmm. do the things we want? The workers say, OK, good. That's a way for us to actually fund all these things which we want to have. The capitalists aren't going to let you do it. Correct, we say to the workers. Mm. Therefore, what we need to do next is stop them with these measures. And a state monopoly of foreign trade, nationalising the assets of, as Marx puts it, the rebels, the capital controls, this is stepping well outside how the market system operates. This is the working class actually starting to control mm. the economy of the nation as a whole. In society's interests. Exactly. Yeah. You've gone from logically... We have immediate demands, we need more wages, we need mm. relief in our rents, etc. To therefore we'll take the resources out of the hands of the capitalists, to therefore we have to control the economy of the nation as a whole. And it follows logically. I mean, there's other points which we could reference in the Communist Manifesto's programme. Almost all of them actually still apply. It was written in 1848. Almost all of them, we still need to win. <laughs> Same system, unfortunately. Sadly so. The only one which we don't is free education for all children in public schools. However, mm -hmm. what is the expression of that demand today? It's higher education. Mm -hmm. We demand free education in the universities for anyone who wishes to go to them so that we actually have all of humanity's store of knowledge open to all of society. OK, thanks for that. So it seems pretty logical, doesn't it? Because you're taking steps, aren't you, with the transitional programme? You're dealing with the issues as they arise once you've started to fight for the immediate interests. So 
is this transitional approach the only way socialists have tried to explain their ideas? It seems like, it, you know, is the obvious one to choose. It does. And actually, in preparing for this, we had discussions about this. And I mentioned it's very difficult, partly because of how the Socialist Party and the CWI operate. This kind of approach is in our DNA. Mm. But it does seem so blindingly obvious. Yeah. It's almost impossible to explain. That's not true at all, of course. No. It's possible to explain. <laughs> yeah. That's what we're doing. But it hasn't been the only way. And for a certain period of history, the main organisations which called themselves Marxists, mm-hmm. the social democratic organisations in the 19th and early 20th century... Previous to the Russian Revolution you're talking about. That's right. Yeah, that kind of time. They took an approach which we call minimum-maximum. In fact, so did they. They had what was called a minimum programme and a maximum programme. And that term is sometimes used in different ways. So just to define what we mean, minimum demands are reforms within the framework of capitalism. So more democratic rights, localised wage increases, things like this, which improve the lot of workers but don't really threaten the capitalist system itself. Maximum demands are measures which put the workers in power. So, for example, open calls to revolution Mm -hmm. and insurrection. Now, there are some organisations today, by the way, which only put forward minimum demands. Mm. And the name for that ideological position is reformism, Mm. that we should work within what we've decided capitalism can give us and not go beyond that. A bit harder today. (laughs) It is a lot harder today, yeah. Yeah. Now, the laugh is, by the way, that history shows that serious reforms within capitalism have only ever really been the byproduct of either revolutionary struggle or the threat of revolutionary struggle. So there are some organisations which only put forward maximum demands. Get rid of money. Yeah, yeah, no, so there is a small group called the SPGB. It's not worth looking into them. But one of their demands in local elections is the immediate abolition of money. It's already happening. (laughs) (laughs) This is completely ultra-left. Obviously, this is well beyond the consciousness of ordinary workers. And actually, by the way, even under a worker state, it's theoretically false. Mm. It's not a measure which you would take under a worker state. We don't have time to really go into that. (laughs) But it's completely wrong. And it's well, well out there. So that kind of ultra-left approach also exists, maximum demands only. But the classical social democrats in that period I was talking about put forward both. Mm -hmm. So they were trying to satisfy both sides of the equation, if you like. Mm -hmm. But this was a time when capitalism was still gathering its forces and expanding around the world. It was wiping out the old backward feudal rulers Mm -hmm. and their relations. So in some cases, it was correct for workers to fight for minimum demands alongside the capitalists against the feudal lords. Although Marx was clear, by the way, that mm. the workers would still have to maintain their own independent political organisations and popularise the ideas of socialism and not just subsume themselves to the capitalists. That was always the case. But the working class in that period was not yet strong enough or experienced enough to have taken power. It's not the case today. And there were problems as well with the minimum maximum programme. And we've hinted at some of them today, by the mm-hmm. way. But the ascendance of capitalism meant that in the wealthier capitalist countries, notably Germany... There was a layer of trade union bureaucrats and socialist MPs and party officials who gained a certain privileged lifestyle and so didn't want to rock the boat. And so therefore, one of the effects of this division into minimum and maximum is that they just grew further and further apart. And the actual struggle carried out by these parties was only for the minimum demands. Mm -hmm. So not threatening capitalism, not making the link towards the need for the workers to take power. The maximum programme was in effect a rhetorical device to be used on parades and that was it. Mm -hmm. Now, the Communist International which was founded by Lenin and Trotsky and the Bolsheviks after the Russian Revolution, Mm -hmm. completely rejected this 
and it put forward explicitly the idea of transitional demands. Mm. It said, this is from the Third Congress of the Communist International, in place of the minimum programme of the reformists and centrists, centrists being parties which are kind of halfway between reformism and revolutionism, waver between the two positions. In place of that minimum programme, the Communist International puts the struggle for the concrete needs of the proletariat, for a system of demands which in their totality disintegrate the power of the bourgeoisie, mm. organise the proletariat, represent stages in the struggle for the proletarian dictatorship. So there's, again, that idea of a chain of demands, one leads on to the next, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and each of which expresses in itself the need of the broadest masses, even if the masses themselves are not yet consciously in favour of the proletarian dictatorship by which they mean democratic workers' state power. Mm. Now, today there are other left groups which have, in effect, minimum maximum programmes, which don't chart a way to actually break capitalism for the workers. They are socialist groups, but they're not explaining these ideas in a way which can take the workers forward. And, you know, so there are media organisations which developed around Corbyn, for example, like Navarra Media, who make, you know, some good left comments on some points, but have, on the one hand, the demand for what they call fully automated luxury communism, i.e. a maximum demand, but then, well, how do we get to that point? Mm -hmm. And really, if you look into their programme, they put forward things like the so-called Preston model, which mm -hmm. is, in effect, a form of local protectionism in local councils. So local councils attract more business to their area to overcome the cuts which the Tories are landing on them. That's an extremely minimum demand. Mm -hmm. You're not even really fighting for more resources in the local area from the government. And certainly doesn't disintegrate the power of the bourgeoisie, <laughs> which certainly I think is a not. very good way of putting it, isn't it? That's right, yeah, yeah. Which in their totality disintegrate the power of the bourgeoisie. Yeah. No yeah. one demand yes, is exactly, going to do yeah. that. And there are even groups which would call themselves Trotskyists. And there's another group in Britain which is called the Socialist Workers' Party, which really only prints in its publications a maximum programme most of the time, calls for revolution. And then when it's involved in concrete struggles day to day, it will put forward decent minimum demands. Minimum demands, by the way, aren't necessarily wrong. Mm. We fight for minimum demands as well. Every day. But it doesn't give a roadmap from how we go from, oh yeah, we need a 5% increase in our wages, we want another tea break in this strike, we, you know, we want PPE to be more widely available, all correct demands in certain struggles, it doesn't explain how workers can go from those to a greater understanding of the need for socialism. So I think people listening to this will be being convinced by the need for this bridge, mm. but there might also be some who think, well, is the transitional programme just a kind of thought experiment for explaining to people the link between the minimum and the maximum demands that you've described there? It's not that, no. It's a, oh, tool. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tool for intervening in the real struggles of workers. Mm. And there's two reasons for that. The first is that, look, in class society, you've seen the statistics coming out recently about another 100 million people around the world are going to be pushed into what is called extreme poverty, i.e. under $2 a day subsistence money, in effect, mm -hmm. simply by the fallout of the pandemic. There are already 600 million of them. These are people without access to any kind of intellectual mm -hmm. or spiritual resources mm -hmm. to lift up you know, their perspectives for what they might achieve as individuals, let alone mm -hmm. what might be possible in all of society. Big sections of the population, and this applies, by the way, not just to the abject poverty in the poorest parts of the world, but even to workers who have been forced out of work, who have had very limited education opportunities in the advanced capitalist countries... There are big sections of the population who feel so downtrodden and have been lied to so consistently that while they like what we're promising them, mm. they find it hard to believe it's possible mm -hmm. until they actually start to see it happen. Mm. So one of the core tasks of socialists mm. is to mobilise the more far-sighted workers 
who do understand that there is a possibility of some kind of change, particularly that means those who are organised in trade unions and in political formations, mobilising to fight for some of these things so that the wider population can look at it and go, aha, the proof is in the pudding. Mm. We can make change. So that's the first reason. But the second reason is, of course, that we need to stay relevant. Mm. So we have to be constantly adjusting how we're demanding things, what policies we're putting forward, as the objective situation changes. And we also need to test our ideas Mm. among workers for measuring their consciousness, seeing where they are, and seeing if we can take a step forward or if we need to reach out to them a little bit more. How long does the bridge need to be? Mm-hmm. So programmes are always formed in dialogue with the working class, and especially when the working class is in struggle, those demands and slogans and everything can evolve then, and that's part of the party, isn't it, doing that? No, it is. And, in fact, Trotsky makes a point in the transitional programme in 1938 mm that all of the demands which he's put in that programme have at one point or another been raised spontaneously, really, by the workers themselves in different struggles. And one of the most important roles of the Revolutionary Party in defining a programme is generalising the experiences of the working class. So looking at one section which enters struggle and saying, how do we apply this to the needs of the class generally and bring all the different sections and parts of the working class together to fight against the one enemy? Because different sections do have different needs. They have different sorts of jobs. They suffer sometimes different kinds of oppression, you know, mm-hmm. racism, sexism, transphobia, etc., mm-hmm. etc., homophobia, all these different things. They have needs for different resources as a result, mm-hmm. live in different parts of the world. So how do we bring them together? Okay, but the programme is not short, is it? No. <laughs> There's a lot of aspects to it, as you've described. Do we have to explain all of that in every situation? Do we have to start at the start and go all the way through? No, we don't have to do that in every situation. It'd be completely unwieldy, obviously. And in fact, sometimes it is most appropriate to just advance one or a few key demands. Because you'd have very big placards if you had the (laughs) whole... That's right, yeah. So this is one of the points, isn't it? It's a difference between a slogan and a demand and between a demand and a programme and a distinction which it might be useful for listeners to be aware of, which is sometimes drawn is the distinction between agitation and propaganda. Mm-hmm. Both those words are used in kind of loose, informal ways, but there is a kind of formal meaning for them sometimes as well. In that agitation is going out to the widest possible mass of the population, trying to convince them of one or two basic core ideas. Propaganda is going to the most advanced layers, the layers of the population with the highest political understanding, particularly, you know, the organised workers, mm-hmm. the trade unionists the and so on. The ones who are in struggle, especially, are thinking about how you're going to win. <laughs> That's right going to them and going beyond that and explaining the broader programme more fully. Mm. And when they have that understanding, they can act as a kind of relay, by the way, Mm. to the wider working class and go to them with specific demands in specific situations to aid their struggles and to help them develop their understanding. So that's agitation and propaganda. And sometimes our work is agitational rather than propagandistic, Mm. if you like. Mm -hmm. I should just add, these are not discrete categories. It's a spectrum. They interbreed with each other. And also, even when you are only carrying out what you might see as agitational work, we would say that it's very important when you have access to a wide working class audience to put forward the idea of socialism whenever possible. So the question then, I think, is what makes an individual demand transitional? Mm. We've talked about a series of demands where one leads on to the other Mm. and you end with Mm. workers being in control of society. And what makes an individual demand transitional or not is... It's transitional if it's a serious reform that goes outside the framework of capitalism. The Communist Manifesto, in describing that 10-point programme which I talked about, talks about, I'm quoting here, measures which appear economically insufficient and untenable, i.e. on the basis of the profit system, Mm -hmm. but which in the course of the movement, in the course of fighting for them, Mm -hmm. 
outstrip themselves mm. and necessitate further inroads upon the old social order. So again, mm. that's describing this idea of a chain, but it's a chain mm. which is realised in the actual struggle for the demands, not mm. just in explaining them. So it's another way of describing that system of demands that form the steps in that bridge. And each individual one, we have to say to them, well, what sort of demand actually leads to the person taking the next step mm. and asking the next question mm. rather than leaving you where you already are? Now, the full transitional programme can only be realised by the working class actually taking power. And in fact, any serious struggle for its main planks would inexorably lead to the working class being on the threshold of power. So in fact, if the transitional programme could be boiled down to two words, which is a dangerous thing to try to do, (laughs) but I think those words would be workers' control. Now, there's a great deal more to it than that. But that is the starting point for constructing socialism. And that starting point is the central idea that we're attempting to popularise in this epoch as the main strategic goal for the workers' movement in this stage of history, Mm. before power is achieved by the working class. So as an example, in the pandemic situation in Britain, Mm, mm. health and safety was under the control of the bosses, and they weren't particularly concerned about health and safety in most cases. They Mm. were concerned about defending their profits. Obviously, this comes into conflict with workers who want to make sure that there is social distancing, that there are masks available, that there is Mm. hand sanitizer, and so on breaks from the close proximity to customers and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah, shields on the tills, all this kind of thing. But those things cost money. Yeah. And if those were to be enacted generally, that is saying to the capitalist system as a whole, you have to ignore profit and provide this to the working class. Mm. And that kind of thing, that's pushing at the boundaries of what capitalism as a system is meant to do. It's not meant to do that. It's meant to extract profit from the working class. Now, there were strikes by workers unofficial strikes, illegal strikes in some cases, which achieved these things. And what we were putting forward was, look, you know as workers that you're the only ones who understand the ins and outs of the actual job and therefore how to make the job safe. Mm. In some areas, you've even taken action which has forced the bosses to make the job safe. Therefore, you should have control over whether the job goes on or does not, Mm. that there should be workers' committees in these workplaces, Mm. health and safety committees elected by the workforce, Mm. which decide whether the job opens or not Mm. and what measures are necessary. Now, that is saying to the workers, you can exercise some control in society. Now, counterpose that to some other left organisations who are simply demanding PPE, hand sanitizer, social distancing and so on. Correct demands. Mm. How do we ensure that the bosses actually give them to us? Okay, I want to ask you more about workers' control in a sec, but while you were speaking just then, I was thinking now in this phase, the demand that we've been putting forward from the Socialist Party to deal with the economic crisis as well as work or full pay, isn't Mm. it? And that again is like what you said, a demand that pushes at the existing framework of capitalism, but is needed Mm. (laughs) because otherwise people are going to be, you know, out of their homes, out of their jobs, children are going to be hungry and so on. So work or full pay is the demand that is meeting what people need today, what workers and young people need, but points to the need to organise really, doesn't it? And the need to organise then points to the question of the leadership and the organisation of the working class and the class conflict, really, that is part and parcel of capitalism. No, that's right. And work or full pay is almost a perfect textbook example of a transitional demand, actually, because one of the things that capitalism relies on as part of its system is what Marx called the reserve army of labour, i.e. a certain amount of permanent unemployment, of a greater or lesser degree, depending on how the economy is doing, which the bosses can use as a threat Mm. to workers who do have a job, saying, well, look, I could replace you, so therefore accept a wage cut so that I can have higher profits. Now, if workers aren't afraid of that then it's much easier for them to struggle 
and to demand a higher share of the profits and their wages. Mm. And, you know, one of the major tools of the capitalist system is removed. Mm. So that's the case objectively, but it also makes perfect sense to people right now. Yeah. Everyone sees yeah. it's exactly what's needed. So it connects exactly with both the end point and the start point of the bridge, mm. if you like. Okay, so this question of workers' control, like you said, it encapsulates a transitional approach. But does that mean we can just put workers' control of health and safety, workers' control of education? Can we just stamp workers' control on every immediate demand thrown up by the working class? And that there you've completed. <laughs> <laughs> Level up. <laughs> you've done the transitional programme. <laughs> well, look, as we just demonstrated with work or full pay, absolutely mm. not. Yeah. Not every demand actually requires that to test the limits of the capitalist system. And obviously, just bluntly stamping workers' control on things, on every situation, <laughs> you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all mm. thing. The approach has got to be raising demands, which, as you said, can mobilise workers into action and guide them towards elements of asserting their control over society and elements of proving why a society which is based on collective ownership, which includes state intervention up to a point under capitalism, is superior to one which is based on private ownership and market competition. So from this, workers can learn both the potential for control and also see the limitations when they only have partial control of the situation. And that might be partial control alongside the bosses. For example, if you have established a workplace committee which has control over health and safety, you don't have control over everything in the workplace. Mm. There's still a tussle between that committee and the bosses, mm. including hey. on health and safety, because yeah. they will try and use measures like pay penalties mm. and rotor penalties to get at that committee and mm. so on. Mm. So therefore, well, OK, if that's a situation, clearly we need control of more. Mm. <laughs> and hiring so, and firing. And exactly, yeah. yeah. To prevent victimisation of trade union reps. Yeah. And these are problems which are posed by starting to assert control, but not having gone all the way. But when you start to assert control, those problems are posed to you point blank. It's easy to understand because they're right in front of your face. Or suppose you have control of an entire branch of industry as the workers, which in some revolutionary or pre-revolutionary situations in the past has been achieved by workers in Spain, for example. Mm. But you're still subject, in that case, to attacks by the private branch of industry, to attacks by the privately owned banks, to robbery, in effect, by the wider capitalist system, not mm. just in your own country, yeah. but in the whole rest of the world, mm -hmm. which is going to be turning its guns on you economically and in some circumstances literally. Mm -hmm. So it also means pointing to the insufficiency of the market, mm -hmm. as we said, with workerful pay, we demand the nationalisation of failing industry, of failing retailers, for example. Mm. Debenhams went under. Thousands of jobs were destroyed by the bosses because they wanted to liquidate their assets, i.e. sell them off to another capitalist, turn them into money. They're laughing while the workers are on the scrap heap with nary a penny to their name. Or yesterday, for example, I was on a demonstration in central London with Equity and Bechtu, two of the main theatre unions in Britain, and all the theatres are shut because of the pandemic. Mm. Now, they can't open on the old basis because, you know, a bit of detail here, theatres normally break even when 70% of the seats are full. Mm -hmm. You take out enough seats to do social distancing, you're talking 20 to 40% of the seats can be full. Mm -hmm. So the only way to open them is at least on the basis of subsidy, but actually in the meantime, you know, the whole market is a basket case right now. Mm -hmm. It appears one day, it disappears the next when there's a lockdown. Mm -hmm. There's been a destruction of all sorts of small local arts organisations. I'm talking about the arts here, but this applies to all sorts of different sectors. So in that situation where the market is completely incapable of providing for the needs of masses of the population, the only thing to do is to step outside the market, and that means public ownership. Now, these oppose, first of all, as defensive demands. The first purpose of nationalisation is to save jobs. 
Mm. But the second is to show that the state can intervene. Mm. And this breaks the ideological lies of the capitalists mm. that privatisation and the market are more effective than public ownership. They have been shown to have their limits and it's been shown that there is an alternative, even if initially it's still under the capitalist control. Now, if that's one on the basis of struggle, by the way, of trade unions taking action in particular, that in itself shows workers that they can exercise mm. a degree of control over the situation. Mm. They went and had a fight and the capitalists said OK mm. and they stepped back. Mm. So it gives them confidence. The next step on the bridge after that, which, by the way, we would try to raise whenever possible, even before nationalisation took place, is workers' oversight or control of publicly owned industry through elected committees. And you use this to expose how, even though it's taken into public ownership, mm -hmm. the capitalist state's bureaucrats run it like a private company. Mm -hmm. They have much of the same privileges as the bosses. They don't allow the workers to express themselves and actually organise things on their own terms. And they only use it as a prop for profit-making firms to provide cheap goods to those firms to exploit their own workers, or as a stopgap before returning it to private hands. And you can see that if you've got oversight of what they're doing. You can look at all the secrets they have in their plans, in their accounts, and so on. Now, workers can actually exercise a high degree of control in industry, even without nationalisation, by the way. For example, through the shop stewards committees, which mm -hmm. we had in, um, particularly in the car industry in Britain in the 1970s, you had a kind of industrial dual power where the bosses had to seek permission for certain decisions from the stewards' committees or they would shut down production. Mm. So, you know, who controlled that? Was it the private owners and their managers or was it the workers and their shop stewards, you know? Mm. A dual power situation. But, as we've explained, control of your own plant alone can't withstand mm. massive economic force of competing multinationals or the blood-sucking banks or, indeed, the power of the capitalist states. Mm. None of these will ultimately act in your interests, even if the capitalist state has nationalised and saved the jobs to begin with. Therefore... Workers' control must be expanded to those other corporations. Mm -hmm. It must be expanded to the banks, which refuse to lend to you on favourable terms. It must be expanded to the state itself, in fact, that the state organisation of the capitalists ultimately have to be dismantled and replaced with a state organisation of the workers. All of this flows logically from the starting point of the struggle just to save your job. And at each stage to win the most secure outcome to the immediate needs which face you. Mm. Not to stop there, but to secure it more by going on to the next step. So it's only because it links it to the next stage and ultimately breaks outside the control and profit needs of capitalism that it is that secure, although even then there are new threats. And in demonstrating these new threats, it shows workers the necessity of generalising their control ultimately to all of society. And to the particularly the main levers of the economy, isn't it? Those commanding heights that dominate what happens. So you talked about the car industry and stuff. It's been a little while, hasn't it, since we've had elements even of the economy in that kind of a situation. So, I mean, some people would say that was then and this is now and it was possible then and it's not possible now. Things are different you know, if transitional demands are meant to take part of the system outside of the existing framework of capitalism, doesn't that just mean that they're impossible under capitalism, that we're, you know, you're dreaming? Are you dreaming, James? <laughs> <laughs> well, here's another line from the transitional programme. Here's Trotsky. If capitalism is incapable of satisfying the demands inevitably arising from the calamities generated by itself, mm -hmm. then let it perish. Good plan. I.e., if the system can't afford us, we can't afford the system. And if that sounds a bit glib, then he goes further and says, realisability or unrealisability is in the given instance a question of the relationship of forces, which can be decided only by the struggle. Absolutely. So what that means is, yeah, OK, there are reforms which go outside the bounds of capitalism individually, mm -hmm. 
However, the capitalists, if put under sufficient pressure, will grant them. Now, why like is the that? the 210 billion that they've spent this year on measures that they wouldn't have planned to spend if their system wasn't under pressure. <laughs> yeah, and that was with no pressure in reality from the workers' movement. Yeah. So imagine what yeah. they could be forced to grant if there was serious pressure. Exactly. What that demonstrates, what the crisis today demonstrates, is that actually capitalism can permit major reforms which go outside the boundaries of the capitalist system if the alternative... Mm is that they risk losing power outright. Mm -hmm. So they can bend very, very far out of it. I mean, even the establishment of the NHS, really, mm -hmm. this was pushing the limits of the capitalist system in 1945. But if the system is still rooted by their control of the remaining major private industry, and particularly control of, ultimately, of organised violence, i.e. the state, mm -hmm. then they can take it all away again. And so we have seen, over the years since the 1945 Labour government, the gradual cutting and privatisation of the NHS, mm. so that it's a shadow of its former self today, although it still exists. Mm. As a uh, reflection of the existence of the pressure that even it still exists, doesn't it? The fact that they are afraid <laughs> to go further. That's right. But having them bent over like that yeah. to prevent the loss of their system, that increases the confidence of the working class. Yeah. It demonstrates to wider layers the possibility of socialist measures. Yeah. And their attempts to claw back the gains or to sabotage the reforms, like you've seen, for example, in Venezuela recently, mm -hmm. those demonstrate clearly the need to finish the job so long as there is a party with a programme there explaining the way out. Mm -hmm. So really, each stage, all we're doing is using both the power and the shortcomings of the capitalists' own system to demonstrate why socialism is blindingly obvious. <laughs> and when the system is in profound crisis, it's more blindingly obvious. Mm. The bridge, if you like, is shorter right now. But there are all sorts of different situations. I mean, an example right now in science, Julian Pito, an epidemiologist, estimated in April that Britain has the capacity for 10 million coronavirus tests a day. So that's the whole population of the UK every week. Mm. Now, these are not accessible because all the materials and staff which are needed are fragmented across different private companies and some public sector groups as well. But the different private companies will not release them unless they have a competitive advantage and they're making a profit out of it. The obvious answer mm -hmm. is to force these companies to pull their resources. But there will still be frictions between these different companies if their resources are pooled because, you know, they maintain commercial secrecy, they need to protect client lists, they might have patented production processes that give them an edge on their competitors. If you pull their resources, that's at risk. Their competitors will get sight of it. Therefore, we have to abolish trade secrets. <laughs> but they will still attempt to sabotage any impingement on profits, as I mentioned we've seen mm. in Venezuela. So therefore, we have to take the boss's profits out of the equation. Mm. That means nationalising them. Mm -hmm. Then they can be pulled and planned and the trade secrets can be abolished without any friction. However, the capitalist state will not willingly grant a tax on profits because it exists to defend the capitalist system. Mm -hmm. Not least because not only do they want to defend profits directly, but they do not want to demonstrate in practice that there is an alternative way of organising society. Mm. Therefore, we need mass pressure on the capitalist government if this reform is to be achieved. That means protests and strikes. Union struggle would therefore be necessary. Even so, how do we ensure the Tories are not ripping us off behind closed doors? We need elected workers oversight and so on and so forth. And there we have it in testing the transitional programme playing out. Mm -hmm. Great. So just to finish then, are there examples of the successful use of the transitional programme? So this kind of logical chain which is necessary to have the most effective fight against the social catastrophe, which is the pandemic and the depression. This kind of logical chain, which I just gave an example of in testing, mm -hmm. this is almost exactly identical to the transitional demands proposed by Lenin 
in September 1917, for the economy more broadly actually, in a document called The Impending Catastrophe and How to Combat It, which is a fantastic example of the transitional yeah, method. Sure is. And now he's actually talking about famine and economic ruin rather than pandemic and economic ruin. But really the major difference between then and now was that in September 1917, there was already dual power in society as a whole. So the Tsar had been deposed by a revolution in February and had been replaced by a capitalist-controlled provisional government on one hand, which was rivaled by the worker-controlled Soviets or elected councils on the other. So in that situation, these demands on the provisional government were backed up by the imminent threat of the Soviets causing problems because they had a certain amount of power as well. And so this system of transitional demands in Lenin's case was crowned with the demand for power to rest only in the hands of the Soviets because the capitalist provisional government was going to act in the same way that I've described the Tory government of today acting. So transferring power to the Soviets was the only way to guarantee that these measures would be carried out and prevent a famine in 1917. Now, Obviously, we don't have a situation of dual power today, so that's an important difference to take into account. So if you like, the bridge is longer than it was in 1917, but it just does go to show that actually even when the bridge appears very short, in fact, the importance of it can be even more heightened mm -hmm. because you have a confusing situation mm -hmm. where the capitalist provisional government is promising to do these things, but behind closed doors it's not doing it. What's the way out of this? Mm -hmm. So the transitional approach, no matter how close or far you are from the goal of socialist revolution, is the approach to take at all times. But that's one example of the successful use, because as we know, that resulted in the workers taking power. In Russia, yeah. I mean, sadly, that power was ultimately lost to a bureaucracy, mm. but power was gained. Mm -mm. We've also mentioned the basic transitional demands, rudimentary beginning of transitional demands in the Communist Manifesto. Mm. Now, in the Communist Manifesto, those are posed as measures to be taken after the working class has achieved state power and made its revolution, but they still act as logical explanations of why full socialist measures are necessary, and they are demands which are meant to mobilise a struggle towards them. We also mentioned earlier the document which is itself called The Transitional Programme. Actually, its original title was The Death Agony of Capitalism and the Tasks of the Fourth International, but it's commonly called these days The Transitional Programme. This did not result in the workers taking power. We don't have time to fully explain all of that here, but the chief thing to remember is that no one could have foreseen the strengthening of Stalinism after World War II when it you know, took over half of Eastern Europe. <laughs> And the breathtaking scale of the betrayal of the workers around the world, it was therefore able to carry out alongside the Social Democrats. Now, we talked earlier about the difference between a minimum-maximum programme and a transitional programme. Both Stalinism and the Social Democrats at this time had retreated into minimum-maximum programmes, which meant in practice minimum-only programmes. So they were actually acting to strengthen capitalism mm. at that time. Because the minimum-maximum part of it as well is the lack of emphasis on the independent role of the working class, isn't mm. it? That's a big factor. In it. And if you don't have that, then the logic is what you said, the sort of retreat into ultimately defending capitalism. That's right. And, you know, that you simply elect representatives to make things a bit better for you in the established structures mm. which ultimately are controlled by the capitalists. You know, mm -hmm. even the most democratic capitalist parliament in existence, it's not impossible that revolutionary socialists could win a majority in it, by the way. It's not the most likely outcome, although, you know, you've seen a glimpse of that in Chile in the 1970s, actually. Mm -hmm. But even that... Behind that elected parliament, you've got the chiefs of the civil service, the police, the army, the courts, etc., etc. The laws, yeah. Yeah, they wield enormous undemocratic power. And that's the real state. The kind of elected committee which sits on top of it mm. has control with the blessing of those people who exercise power. So you need to break up that state machinery. 
But this situation after World War II, it allowed capitalism to consolidate with the help of the Stalinists and the Social Democrats. Mm -hmm. It allowed a new imperial master, the United States, to exploit the world situation, mm -hmm. to grow for a period. Mm -hmm. This and other factors led to a prolonged boom for capitalism, mm -hmm. which meant that, you know, for a time, a lot of workers believed that capitalism could provide gradual, permanent progress for mm -hmm. them. The transitional programme, by the way, in 1938, the main theme which it puts forward, in fact its opening line, is that the crisis of humanity can be reduced to the crisis of the revolutionary leadership of the proletariat, that it's simply a question of leadership at that stage because you have mass workers' organisations and big struggles breaking out in all sorts of different countries. Today we have struggles breaking out in different countries, we don't have mass workers' political formations and we don't have that broad understanding of the possibility of socialism. So we have not just a crisis of leadership, but also a crisis of organisation and of consciousness. Now these are interrelated things, obviously, and our programme has to put forward ideas which can start to resolve them, not just by explaining how it's possible to reach socialism, but for example, calling for a new mass workers' party in this country or in other countries, which aren't finished mass revolutionary parties, but allow the working class to come together and discuss and find out in practice through struggle what are the best policies and actions to fight for, what is the programme that they need and what sort of organisation and therefore leadership they need in their political formations. And by the way, we put forward democratic demands as well as economic demands, demands for jobs, homes and services, and demands against oppression in our transitional programme, like the right to strike, in some countries the right to vote at all, the Arab Spring in 2010, one of the demands was universal suffrage, that's still a revolutionary demand in some circumstances, but we want to put those forward, both to provide more space for the working class to organise and to allow inroads into the capitalist state, which won't fundamentally get rid of the power of the capitalist representatives in the unelected parts of the state, but will make it harder for that state machinery to be used against the workers' movement in some circumstances. And in particular, in this period, the demand for a revolutionary constituent assembly in countries like Hong Kong and Chile. Now, this would not be a finished form for a revolutionary government, which ought to be based on elected councils of the working class in local areas, building up to regional and national councils. That's an equivalent of the Soviet system. However, a constituent assembly drawing in all the different layers of the mass of the population can be a focal point for concentrating opposition to the existing regime. And in establishing a constituent assembly from below, you would need to hold local assemblies in all the different neighbourhoods. You would need to probably form defence committees in some areas if there was an attempt to repress the convening of a constituent assembly. And those are big steps forward in organising workers to form their own class-based structures, such as workers' committees in the factories and in the neighbourhoods, which can develop to play the role of Soviets. But what the transitional programme was very successful in doing was explaining the method which we've laid out here today. So it's well worth reading. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you can buy it from leftbooks.co.uk mm -hmm. with an excellent introduction by Peter Taff, who for many years was the General Secretary of the Socialist Party and is still a member of our Executive Committee, elaborating how that transitional programme would apply actually in 2010. Mm -hmm. But it's an example of the method. Mm -hmm. The key thing, therefore, 
is the method. You know, not every demand which is in the 1938 transitional programme is still applicable today. Mm. Some of the demands have been superseded, but most of them are more and more relevant, mm. almost in their original form, as the crisis situation deepens. Mm. And look at our own transitional programme, which is printed every week on page three of our newspaper, The Socialist. It's not our full transitional programme, it's kind of the main demands which we're putting forward at this stage. We have demands in other areas which are fleshed out in articles and it lists a whole series of partial demands Mm -hmm. which are trying to mobilise workers into struggle to improve their conditions in a way which pushes at the boundaries of what the capitalist system is meant to do but is crowned with, as you put it, taking the commanding heights of the economy. So the actual... (laughs) The actual concrete figures which we use keep reducing because yeah. the, the number of businesses which can, that's yeah. right the number of businesses which monopolise the economy keeps reducing. For a socialist government, this is from page three of the socialist newspaper, to take into public ownership the top 150 companies and the banking system that dominate the British economy and run them under democratic working class control and management, compensation to be paid only on the basis of proven need. Now, there's no contradiction between that general demand, Mm. which is, in fact, the economic basis of socialist reconstruction of society, Mm. and the partial demands for nationalisation, which we put forward to defend jobs, Mm -hmm. to demonstrate how workers can start to fight for control. Mm. Because what we're trying to do in that programme is catch lots of different layers of consciousness. We talked earlier about how not all parts of the working class have Mm. the same conditions, Mm. and so they have different demands to solve their needs Mm. but therefore inevitably not all parts of the working class draw socialist and revolutionary conclusions at the same time Mm. even within a part of the working class which is moving forward in the nhs nurses have come out and demanded that their unions apply for a 15 percent pay rise and Mm. need a a strike for it Mm -hmm. and that's a big step forward for a lot of nurses who wouldn't have done that a little while ago Mm. that's a big step forward in consciousness they're growing in confidence they're learning that they can make a stamp on the situation Mm -hmm. But there are still nurses who say, oh, this is impossible, it's a utopian demand, we shouldn't be doing this sort of thing, it, you know, it's to the detriment of the patients. Mm-hmm. So in any given section as well, there are those different layers. We need to try and catch everyone. Mm-hmm. So different bits of the programme are aimed at different layers of consciousness mm-hmm. as well, but all of them take people on that journey. The programme is so powerful like that, isn't it, in being able to unite like our, what we stand for. It's against discrimination, racism, sexism, homophobia, but it's also against low pay. You know, it's about trying to link those different struggles because that's where the real strength of the working class lies doesn't it when there's like you say generalized struggle linking people up so these are all different aspects Mm. which come from a general problem which is the capitalist system Mm -hmm. and people don't see the whole problem at once they see the problem which faces them personally Mm -hmm. and so we catch them on that and we take them on the journey explain Mm -hmm. how it's linked to other problems which their brothers and sisters and co-workers and friends face Mm. So we generalise in that sense that we link up all the disparate demands and we also generalise in the sense that we point to a systemic solution as the crowning achievement of that system of demands which lead people on. So it is transitional in the sense that this is a period of transition that Mm. we're in right now. From decaying capitalism to the moment of the working class taking power. I don't mean that it's inevitable that that moment will come. unfortunately. (laughs) That'd be easier. (laughs) What I mean is that that is the strategic objective Mm. for socialists in this time. Once the working class has taken power, it can begin to construct a new society and move towards socialism. So it's transitional, therefore. It's a transition from the immediate demands of the working class to the working class taking power. That's the transition, that's the link that we are trying to make. And in fact, on taking power... Most of it would still be a guide to the immediate measures which the working class needs to carry out. They move from demands to policies. Mm. 
But then we would have to go beyond that programme. We'd have to move into more detail about how workers organise control of their representatives and their state, how they regulate this new economic system, how they develop the productive potential of new technology which capitalism cannot fully utilise, how they distribute equitably all the fruits of their labour and so on and so on, solve all the problems which capitalism has left them. These don't appear in our current programme. We have to get them to the point first. Mm -hmm. And you can see that approach today in the various different charters we produced mm -hmm. to deal with the crisis, the Youth and Student Charter, dealing with the problem in the universities and for young workers mm -hmm. and in the schools. You can see it in the Workers' Charter we produced at the start of the pandemic for mm -hmm. the measures to avoid the impending catastrophe. We don't have a mass influence yet with these ideas, although we do have a record of achieving a mass influence using the transitional methods of reaching and organising workers on a scale no other Trotskyist organisation in Britain ever has. That's right in the Liverpool Council struggle and the defeat of Margaret Thatcher's poll tax. Mm. 18 million people. 18 million. If, you, if that's not a mass movement led by Trotskyism, I don't know what is. But that method, with the prospect which faces workers, as Rosa Luxemburg put it in an earlier period, the prospect of socialism or barbarism, mm. that method is the only way to chart a way out. Mm. So we say to you listeners, if you agree, you want to help us, join the socialists. Do what James said. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, James. I think that was a great introduction to the transitional method, why we have programmes. And I think just there at the end, you've shown, we've recently produced a whole number of charters that's showing that it's a tool that we think is so much needed today, don't we, in this era of COVID and capitalist crisis. Charters, programmes, bringing us together in struggle, but also, as you say, charting a way forward. That's what we're up to. OK, so if you like that... Read the notes, get involved. James will say what has to happen next. <laughs> As always, if you like what you've heard, recommend us to your co-workers and friends. Donate to help fund us. And if you agree, join the socialists. Hey, hey. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, James. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for a Workers International. Today we heard from James Ivans and I'm Sarah Saxeldridge. This episode was edited by Nick Hart. The Socialist Event of the Year will be Socialism 2020. It's an open forum of discussion and debate over four days, 20th to the 23rd of November, including a discussion on the transitional programme. Join hundreds of socialists, trade unionists and working class fighters to discuss the way forward in this unprecedented crisis of capitalism. We're scheduling it online, but if in-person sessions become possible, you can upgrade your ticket nearer the time. Read more and book now at socialism2020.net. You can find further reading on this episode in the notes in your podcast app and at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash podcast. If you want to get in touch, email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. You can find further reading on this episode in the notes in your podcast app and at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash podcast. If you want to get in touch, email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Do you agree with the policies and actions the Socialist Party is fighting for? Then we need you. Send us your details at socialistparty.org.uk slash join. If you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, contact the Committee for a Workers International by visiting socialistworld.net. Socialism, the podcast, has no wealthy backers. We rely only on funding from the working class which maintains our political independence. So help us take the fight to big business. You can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. Until next time, solidarity.